What's, what is something everyone loves, they want more of, but they never want to talk about? Money. So here's the unintentional part. That we're talking about money, and we just had the treasurer sharing the scripture reading. Not on purpose. We're not you know, sending any subliminal messages there. You know, we've already taken the offering. We're done. We're not taking a second one. Relax. <laughs> it seems like the topic of money has, uh, has become one of the most private parts of our life. How uncomfortable would you be if I asked you to turn to your neighbor right now and tell him how much money you made last year? Oh, you didn't just say that, did you? Oh, yeah, I'm not doing that. Now think about some of the other questions I, would ask you, I could ask you, though. While maybe still being uncomfortable, you probably give it a shot. Maybe I'd ask you, what's your most embarrassing moment? The time that you are most ashamed of yourself. The worst thing you've ever done. And you know what? I think most of you would give a shot at that question, wouldn't you? But you wouldn't turn and say, this is how much I made last year. Why is that? Are we ashamed of money? Embarrassed by how little or how much we make? Why is money such a big secret? I think on the one hand, it's because... Well, humanity tends to rank each other based on money, possessions, and our quality of living. You know, keeping up with the Joneses, right? People are also, many times, stuck, looked down upon because of our impression of them being higher than us. To reveal our finances, to reveal our status, and even our personal worth within society. Within the church, though, I think we're uncomfortable with the topic of money because we're afraid of it. We're afraid that it'll be revealed how much we really do love it. And good Christians don't love money, right? Because none of us in this building love money. But good Christians do tend to find ways to justify holding on to what they have. There's always more excuses for why I shouldn't give than excuses for why I should. And if you talk about money in church, well, our defenses are always on the rise, aren't they? I mean, don't you feel a little defensive right now? Zach is up here talking about money, you know, and your butt in your pants pocket right now. My wallet is put away. It is shut. You're not touching it. We always get our defenses on the rise when we talk about finances in church because really it translates into what? Put more money in that plate. How many times have we talked about money in the church and it hasn't had something to do with we need to pay for this project, right? I mean, isn't that really the only time we talk about money? Well, we need to pay for this project. Maybe it's the elevator project that happened years back. Maybe it's something else coming up and we need money for that. You know, we need, we need food today for for uh, Bible Bowl. That's the only time we talk about money, when we need something, right? So, of course, if you're going to talk about money, you're asking for something from me. So I'm going to get a little defensive. Then the question becomes, are we really talking about stewardship and faithfulness, or is it about getting a project paid for? It's unfortunate, but when the church talks about money, I've seen it uh, 
most times devolve into something closely resembling bullying and guilt-tripping. And who wants to be guilt-tripped? The few times that I've seen churches talk about giving without the guilt trip, I still have been rather uncomfortable because you don't need a guilt trip to feel uncomfortable about money, do you? The reason being is that when the church honestly engages scriptures regarding charity and giving, this is just from my personal experience, I always feel like I'm lacking. You can't talk about money without me getting at the end of the day and looking at what the Bible says and feeling like I haven't done enough. I know I could give more, and I know that you could probably convince me very easily that I should give more, but what makes me very uncomfortable is the fact that even if you convince me, at the end of the day, I'm probably going to find an excuse why not to. And I know that before we even start talking about it. Have any of you ever felt this way? Or am I the only one? As uncomfortable as the topic of money is, the Bible, in fact, takes a lot of time dealing with it. I mean, just think about the book of Matthew alone right now, all right? Matthew 5.42 says, "Give Give to the one who asks of you. The beginning of Matthew 6 says, Give in secret. The end of 6, you cannot serve two masters, God and money. Lay up treasures in heaven. Chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is a hidden treasure. We should sell everything in order to possess. Matthew chapter 17, the temple tax. Chapter 18, forgiving a debt as God has forgiven us. Chapter 19, the rich young ruler, sell everything that you have. Chapter 20, the parable concerning fair wages in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 21, Jesus drives out the merchants in the temple for turning it into a marketplace and a den of thieves. Matthew 22, pay taxes to Caesar, and we're not done yet. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, and talents not being a sum of talents being a sum of money, not a skill set. 26, Jesus betrays Judas for Jesus Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And that is just Matthew, not Mark, Luke, John, or any other place in the Bible. If talking about money was offensive and uncomfortable, then we need to stand here and admit something today. Jesus is offensive and uncomfortable. So let's try to do two things today. Let's lower our defenses and hear what Scripture has to say about our finances being willing to change if that's what it shows us. And second, let's commit to speaking about money without bullying, without guilt-tripping, and without establishing one another's value based on what we possess or what we give. Whether you give more or give less, that will not determine who you are today. It's not what we're talking about. One of the lies that must be removed when talking about money is that we must give a certain percentage and anything else is just being extra generous. Percentages and large amounts do not matter. Two offerings of $100 each are not equal. $100 out of a monthly salary of $800, that's a sacrifice. $100 out of a monthly salary out of of $3,000, That's pretty close to pocket change. 
But at the same time, 10% is not always equal to 10%. Because 10% from a family working on minimum wage, that can be a backbreaker. But 10% from a 60,000 year salary family is an inconvenience. When we talk about faithful finances, giving, and generosity, we should frame our discussion more in terms of excess. We must understand that excess will always be at someone else's expense. The Bible doesn't teach us against having money, against having things, or even against spending time with recreational activities. Instead, it recognizes that these things are gifts from God. What the Bible does teach against is excess at the expense of someone else. If you have more than enough and another does not have enough, this is where the Bible begins to speak. As Jesus said, the poor will always be among you. And as long as they are, charity must take priority in our finances by the trimming of excess. Let me give you an example of this from the Old Testament. Why does Solomon stray from God? Why does he become a worshiper of idols, eventually setting up the nation of Israel for civil war? Well, on the surface, I think most of us are going to say, well, it's because of all the wives he married and, and because he went after their gods, right? Because he married foreign women. That might be our initial impression. And while that is correct, it's not the whole story. There was something that happened first. And the wives were the result of something else. In the story of Solomon, there are a great many things that Solomon does. Above all things, he asks God for wisdom, and this pleased God. Solomon built a temple to God, giving great offerings and sacrifices. The whole world was coming to Solomon because of his wisdom, and by extension, they were coming to God. The Lord is present in Solomon and in Israel. And things are very hopeful until something happens. Suddenly the story begins to change. And it wasn't the wives that was the first part of that change. And then at the end of chapter 10 is where things turn south. It describes the great extent of Solomon's wealth. Shields of gold. Six stairs ascending to his throne. Gold chalices, his temple coated in gold, a massive fleet of the best ships bringing continuous supplies of gold, 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. Silver was as common in the city as, of Jerusalem as was the stone. On top of that, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. This is a list, and at the end of that list were the wives and concubines, not at the beginning. Now, this sounds like a description of the depths of Solomon's success. Wow, I wish I were Solomon, except for the 700 wives part. That might be a little rough, right? It sounds like a description of Solomon's success, but in reality, it's an indictment of his crimes. The expression of his great wealth was not to say, look how great Solomon has become, but rather it's to say, Look how little regard Solomon has for the word of God. Bear with me for a moment. It's no coincidence that immediately after this, it reads, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow 
the Lord. We're not, talk, we're not taking interpretive liberty with this text here regarding Solomon's wealth. Rather, the law of Moses very clearly states all the, king, all the things that a king should do and should not do. And in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 11, it systematically goes through all those things and shows that Solomon did every one of the things that God said a king should not do. Unless we read these side by side, we don't even realize this. Look with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16 through 20. It says, The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes his throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. You notice any problems there? Solomon acquires many horses from Egypt. The law says, don't do that. Don't acquire many wives. He did that too. Don't acquire excessive silver and gold. Maybe he overlooked that part. His heart must not be lifted above his brothers. Six steps just to get to his throne. Solomon was always looking down on you. The prohibition in Deuteronomy is not about success, profit, or wealth. It's about excess. God does wish to bless us. He does wish for us to have things that bring us joy. God is not saying vacations are bad. Don't go home and cancel all your spring break trips, all right? That's not what we're saying. But when we possess such things in excess, it's always to the lack of someone else. Having excess is not about having too much. It's about someone else having too little because we have too much. When we are surrounded by excess, we begin to redefine our standard of living. A good standard of living now requires this, this, and that. Why didn't we need those things yesterday? We're unhappy before we were, we were not unhappy before we had those things, right? But would we be unhappy if we lost those things? Think about that for a second. Maybe there's some things in our lives that we've recently acquired. We were happy before, but if I lost that thing, would I be unhappy now? Something's changed. This is the difference between loving God and loving money or things. Would the loss or the removal of things we do not truly need affect our ability to find joy? Let me just read that one more time. Would the loss or the removal of things that we do not truly need affect our ability to find joy? When you lose things, do you lose joy? 
When God is no longer enough, we have lost our first love. Think about the ways the standard of living has changed over the years. Things that are now necessities that not long ago were considered luxuries or maybe didn't even exist, right? How long ago did the cell phone, was the cell phone not even there, right? And I was talking, I know I was talking with Kate Sparks the other day. Um, I don't see her. Is she here? She must be downstairs. And she was talking about how, you know, they didn't even have a computer in their house, you know? And now you can't get by without a computer, Computers, cars, washing machines, etc. All of these things have been around for a relatively short period of time and they have been added on to us as necessities. I mean, just look at that for a second and think, well, what's the next thing I need that I don't currently have? Because if I don't currently have it, let's just admit something right now. I don't need it. It's not that it's wrong to have it, but let's not claim that we need it. I mean, I do own all of those things. I have a computer, a tablet, car, washing machine, you know, cell phone, you know, all those things. Instead, I'm trying to bring attention to the fact that society will always be adding things to life that we've gone without. And it will always be convincing us that those things are basic necessities. We need to have the willingness to engage these supposed needs as we make decisions about our finances and our charity. As we speak of excess, we must consider things like, do I buy a new car or do I buy a used one? Do I have more cars than I have drivers in the house? Do I need the $3,000 washing machine or will the $500 one do? The smartphone or the flip phone? Oh, heaven forbid I ever go back to a flip phone, right? Oof. My grandma doesn't even have a flip phone anymore. Designer clothes or Salvation Army? And for each of us, those answers are going to be different. I can't answer those for you. Notice that we're not asking, what can I afford? This is, this is a different question altogether. We're not asking, what can I afford? Because just because we can afford something doesn't make it right. It doesn't matter what you can afford. If you can afford excess, that doesn't justify living in excess. We're talking about right and wrong, not about what we are or are not able to do. Generosity is not about how much or what percentage you give. It's about how does your giving affect your quality of life? Or even better yet, does your giving affect your quality of life? If you stopped giving today, would there be any change in the way you lived? the way you were able to live. If you started giving today, would there be any change in the way you lived, in the way you're able to live? We should not be giving out of our excess what is extra. We should be giving in such a way that it determines and impacts our ability to even have excess. Notice Solomon's heart is not led astray because of sin, because of idolatry, or even because of women. Solomon's heart is led astray because of the presence of excess led to the love of excess. And the love of excess drove him away from the arms of his God and into the need of pleasing his excessive numbers of wives and their gods. It wasn't the wives that led Solomon astray. It was Solomon's love of excess that led him to the many wives that led him to the idols that led him astray. Okay, There's something that started long before that. 
Solomon fell away because he fell in love with too many things. Let's pause and take a break. How painful was that? I'm sure that at the moment our defenses are already pressuring us. I don't have access. That isn't what God meant. I already give a lot. Remember from the beginning why I said I am uncomfortable with talking about money in church? Because I know that what God wants from me, it's not a question of what does he want. It's I know. It's about am I going to give what he wants? I know what God wants from me. But I also know that my defenses will probably convince me that I'm already doing enough. I feel guilty because I know that I could do more, but I probably won't. Anybody on the same page? This isn't about a guilt trip. This isn't about the church needing a financial boost. As you said, we've already taken the offering and we're not going to take another one until next week. Sure, it wouldn't hurt to have a larger offering and a more consistent giving, but this is about priorities. This is about faithfulness. It's about who are we serving? An appropriate response to God's call for greater generosity and less excess would be to give a larger portion than the offering plate, but that's not the end of it. Turning on the lights in the building is important, and for most churches... For most churches, it's getting harder and harder. Think about all the causes that exist today. Think about your neighbor. Think about the elderly living on a fixed income. Think about the cashier making minimum wage. Don't look for one big ticket donation, but rather allow generosity to become a way of life. Tip big. When you go out to lunch and you have a waitress serving you, or a waiter serving you, tip generously. Tip like Jesus would. Give to the guy on the side of the road. When you see a charity collecting in front of the grocery store, be ready. Have an extra 20 sitting in your wallet just so that when you come across somebody asking for something, you're ready. Notice someone's shoes falling apart and offer them, get them a new pair. Develop in yourself an attitude that is always prepared to give. And maybe even prepared to come from the store empty-handed because you chose to give instead. I mean, can you imagine that? Going to the grocery store and walking away and going, well, we're not going to get these groceries today because I helped someone else get theirs. You think God's ever going to be like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Be consistent. Budget your giving. But more importantly, when it comes to giving, break your budget. The new covenant means that tithing is not binding. We're given the opportunity to go above and beyond the tithe if we are able. Sarah and I budget our giving, but to tell you the truth, I don't think there's ever been a month where we've been able to stay within our budget. I don't know why we bother budgeting it. Budgeting it. Probably so that we can stay consistent. Because we need that line to say, you have to, you have to, you have to. We've got to make sure we hold ourselves accountable. But then there's also that line where you say, I don't know what the right hand's doing. I don't know what the left hand's doing. It's just happening. A generous heart will always find ways and places to give. But a lover of excess will always find excuses not to. 
So let us build up good habits, giving in the small things on a regular basis. Let us not fall into the snare of excess, but understand what enough really means. Let our giving touch our standard of living. What we receive will always be greater than what has been given to us. One person, this is uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24 and 25. We read it already. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. Okay, I don't know where that is. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. I just love that last part. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Don't you ever feel like you just need to be refreshed some days? I mean, Scripture gives us a pretty clear answer, doesn't it? Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. As we close the song, I want to give you the opportunity now. If God is pulling on you, if you've been wrestling with Him and His grace, I challenge you to come forward and talk. If you wish to receive baptism, if you've been thinking about it, if you don't even know what it's all about, come forward and we can talk and we can learn. The invitation is yours as we sing.